right. Thank you for that. Uh, it's a privilege to be with you all today. And for those of you who are joining us online, um, I would like to pray to begin here. And we're going to start our series on the three angels' messages. So kind of each of our presentations is going to layer upon the next. So we're starting at the beginning of the three angels' messages. And we'll finish by the time that our time is together. And then also give a brief recap. So uh, this morning we'll be dealing with the topic of the everlasting gospel. But let's pray. Sweet Jesus, thank you for this privilege to come into your presence, to know you, and to learn of you. And I pray as we address the first angel's message this morning, the first part of the first angel's message, that you would speak to us with power, with clarity, and with conviction. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I want to kind of give you guys a big picture of the three angel's messages before we jump into the first angel's message. Uh, The three angels' messages, there's kind of basically bookends that surround this topic. And so when you get to Revelation chapter 14, you might as well turn there. We're going to spend our whole time in Revelation 14. Well, I say that. That's actually totally not true. But uh, we're going to start in Revelation chapter 14, then I'll give some backdrop on uh, defining some terms that are used here. So in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. And the three angels' messages end in verse 12 with, Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So the two bookends of the three angels' messages are the gospel. Okay, The faith of Jesus, we'll break that down Saturday evening, I believe. And we're going to walk through kind of what that means. But it's referring to the gospel, and this is so important to us because I'm not a doctor, but I'm just assuming that if you've got the first part of the message is about the gospel and the last part of the message is about the gospel, then everything else is also going to relate to that theme. And so we're going to be looking at the gospel at the heart of the three angels' messages and gospel issues that are at stake in the midst of the three angels' messages. That's kind of our objective over the course of our time together, because Revelation chapter 14 shows up at a time whenever Revelation 13 is rampant, right? There's this bad religion that's sacking the earth. There's a horrible picture of God that's being given. The people of God are being persecuted. It's not a good time. And uh, there is it's coercion and force and death threats being heaped upon people for standing faithful to God. And in the midst of this darkness, God raises up messengers. God raises up instrumentalities to proclaim the truth of the gospel and a message of warning and grace to the world in the height of this apostate system wreaking havoc on the earth. So God raises up this message in Revelation chapter 14 that is so, so important to bring clarity to the world about a true picture of God's love, a true picture of God's character, and how he does life. So uh, that's going to be kind of the thrust of our discourse over the next series of days. And what happens in Babylon in the second angel's message is in direct opposition to the gospel. And that's why it's brought out. So if we, if we were to find ourselves studying the three angel's messages, and we spent a majority of our time focusing on Babylon, focusing on the mark of the beast. The problem is we have lost sight of the real point of the three angels' messages. That doesn't mean that those aren't significant. They're incredibly significant. The whole reason why these three angels' messages are being preached is because of the chaos and the, the 
pending doom that's going to be for those people who receive the mark of the beast. But that's not the point of the three angels' messages. It's giving a context, right, to the world events that are happening. But the main thrust of the three angels' messages is the gospel. And if we lose sight of this, having a knowledge of end-time events isn't going to help us at the end of the day because we won't find a true saving faith and trust in Jesus. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the point. So that's kind of the big picture of where we're going and what we need to do. So I first want to look at the first angel's message here again. And there are three primary components of the first angel's message. Um, and if you were to do a poll of what the first angel's message says, if you were to do a poll of most Adventists today and ask them, what is the first angel's message? I believe a majority of the people's response would be, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. The problem is, that's not how the message begins. And that's not actually the main thrust of the message. The first angel's message begins with the everlasting gospel. We see this in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 again. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Then, after the preaching of the gospel, an appeal is given, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Then there's the third component to the first angel's message, and worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. Now, we'll have separate presentations on these other two aspects of the first angel's message, but I want this to be clear that the, it doesn't make any sense. Right? If you were worshiping on a street corner, if you were street preaching, if you were just telling people to fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come, that makes no sense to somebody who has no understanding of the Bible. So why would God send an angel, which is you know, His messengers, to the world starting the conversation there without giving any context? That doesn't make any sense. That's not the way this message begins. It begins with the everlasting gospel being preached to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And in response to that gospel message, then an appeal is given for people to fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. And it makes perfect sense in response to the gospel, doesn't it? Right? Whenever you've heard the beauty of the gospel, and we'll cover that here in just a moment, then it makes sense that in response to the gospel, people would have a reverential fear of God. Right, And that they would want to live a life that would honor him in the midst of the judgment. So the gospel is what sets the context for the remaining parts of the first angel's message and the whole three angel's messages for that part. Okay, So um, I want to start with a sobering story. We're talking about the everlasting gospel. So um, I'll start here. There we go. I am staring at my computer, not the remote thing there. Thank you. So Someone shared a story with me a little while back. I was preaching at a place or teaching at a place, and someone else taught in the afternoon on the sufferings of Christ. I thought, I definitely want to be here for that. And they started this story about their early conversion. They, I don't remember how early they were in, but it's very, very uh, towards the beginnings of their faith experience. And they were knocking on doors, and I don't remember if they were you know, doing Christian literature on a donation basis, like call porter work, or if they were just giving out free literature at the door. I think they were just giving it out. But they knock on this door, and they tell the person, hey, I've got this book, man. And the guy says, uh, come inside. So he comes inside, says, what the de- what's the deal? He says, I got this book, and it talks about the fact that Jesus died for you. And the guy says, and? What do you mean, and? Jesus died for you, man. So what? So what? Sit down. So this young missionary sits down, 
says, let me tell you a story. And they begin to tell a story about a guru of theirs. They were from some Eastern religion, and they had a guru. And this person was deeply uh, hated within their, their community, in their region of the world, because their religious views were different than the other people. And that eventually led to persecution, unfortunately. And the man was taken from his home, taken out into the woods, and things were done to him that I'm not going to communicate from a pulpit in a public message. Horrible horrible things that are an absolute violation of the Geneva Convention at the least. And, but the way in which they inflicted this pain upon this man, it took days for him to eventually die. And this man is weeping as he's telling this young Christian what was done to his guru. And he says, what my guru went through was way worse than what your Jesus went through. So why should I put my faith in him? I mean, they didn't tell me that one in the Bible studies. Like, he doesn't know how to answer that question. Because the amount of physical pain that this man endured and how long it lasted is certainly longer than what Jesus went through. Jesus died in a matter of hours. I'm not downplaying the sufferings of Christ. We're going to go into that today and in the faith of Jesus at the end of our presentations together. But the point is, if it's just the level of physical pain that Jesus went through, well, aren't there other people who were crucified? And aren't there people who lasted longer in their crucifixion than Jesus did? Yes. And is crucifixion painful? Yes. So what do you do with this? If our basic premise of the gospel is that Jesus endured some physical suffering on a cross for a set amount of time, and that's the gospel, what do you do with the fact that maybe someone has suffered more? Are you understanding kind of the difficulty here? If that's what, But if you ask a Christian today, what's the gospel? It's that Jesus died for you. Jesus died for you. But we don't quite understand the level and the magnitude of what Jesus went through, which is what makes his sacrifice different. And that's what this person asked the students of the school that I was teaching at. If it's just the level of suffering that Jesus went through in a physical sense, what do you do with the fact of, you know, the fact that someone went through something worse, for one, and two, if it's just the fact that Jesus died for the good of humanity, what do you do with all the other martyrs for good causes? What about Mahatma Gandhi or Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. or other people who died for the benefit of their people? Are you understanding? And many of our people today and many in Christendom today do not understand the significance of a suffering Messiah and all of what Jesus endured on our behalf. And this is the point they're making to them. And I think it was a, it's an important point for us to wrestle with and grapple with because the gospel is so much bigger and so much more wonderful and powerful and convicting and enrapturing than many of the caricatures that are projected by Christians today. Okay? Now, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, and this gospel will be preached in the world as a witness to all the nations. Now, does that language sound familiar? It should. Where did we just hear that? Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. Right, that I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. This is similar language that's being used here, and this is a good uh, couching for us to understand, uh, connecting some dots from the language used in Revelation 14. Then it says, and then the end will come. So when this gospel is preached to all the world as a witness, then the end will come. Well, I have a very reasonable question for you today. Where is Jesus? Jesus isn't here. Jesus has not come back yet, which implies to me that there's something about the, 
this gospel that the world is still waiting for, else we would not be waiting on Jesus. Are you with me today? Okay, this should be very clear to us that something's missing here. If we had it all figured out, we wouldn't be standing here having another meeting, praying that Jesus would come. He would have been here by now, right? So what is the, this gospel he's referring to, right? If this happens, then this will happen. So we'll skip some of this for time's sake. Well, Revelation chapter 14 again says that the everlasting gospel will go to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And we're given a de- definition of the everlasting gospel. It's been very helpful for me. It's found in Manuscript 32, 1896. It says, The message proclaimed by the angel flying in the midst of heaven is the everlasting gospel, the same gospel that was declared in Eden when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. So we were just told here in the Spirit of Prophecy that the everlasting gospel in Revelation chapter 14 that's preached to the whole world, which is similar to the, this gospel that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24 verse 14, is also the same gospel that was preached in the Garden of Eden. Well, what is that gospel that was preached in the Garden of Eden? Well, first of all, that the heel of the promised Messiah would be bruised. We were told that whenever God is cursing the serpent, that there's a seed of Eve who will come along and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. He will suffer as he overcomes you. We also see in the Garden of Eden that when Adam and Eve sin, something had to suffer. Something innocent had to suffer to cover them of their shame and nakedness, right? To be clothed and covered from their shame and their nakedness. Then we get to the sanctuary service in the Old Testament, and we see that a lamb is slain, right? Let them build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. And one of the chief things that took place was, again, that something innocent has to suffer for their sake to cleanse them of their sins. Then we get to the prophets of the Old Testament, and what is their message? That the Messiah will suffer. Chiefly, we see this in Psalm 22 and Isaiah chapter 53 and other places. Then Jesus gets to earth, and what is he telling the disciples? I'm going to suffer. And the disciples hated this message. It made no sense to them, right? Your job is to come and to get rid of the Romans, to get back on David's throne, and we can get our land back. But that's not why Jesus came. It makes no sense to them. What do you mean you're just going to suffer for people, Jesus? How's that going to win the battle? It's going to win, amen? (laughs) But they didn't understand it at that time. So Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. Then whenever Jesus is resurrected and he's walking with two disciples on the road to Emmaus, they say, we thought that he was the guy. And then he poses a question to them. Didn't the Messiah have to suffer? Ought not the Christ to have suffered? Didn't you know that he had to suffer? Now, why would he say that? In the midst of the road to Emmaus, he's given them a booming Bible study. Can you imagine being there for that, walking through the entire Old Testament? Oh, yeah, that was about me, and that was about me. He wasn't being pompous, obviously, but that was about the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the Messiah, the Messiah, the Messiah. We're going to see things in the Old Testament that we never saw, right? Even the best of our scholars are going to have their mouths gaping open when they see how much of the gospel was laced throughout the Old Testament. Amen? And this is what happens here. But the point is, didn't you know that he had to suffer? And then we get to the Acts of the Apostles. And what message are they preaching in the book of Acts? That the Messiah suffered. I'm not a doctor, 
But I'm just surmising here that from what we're seeing from the Garden of Eden all throughout salvation history, the most important... Oh, by the way, we also see this in the book of Revelation, speaking of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world in an overcoming, conquering lamb. So what is the message we're given throughout the scriptures? It's that Jesus will suffer. If we're going to be preaching the everlasting gospel to the world, it better look like this. Are you with me? It has to look like this, that Jesus will suffer or we're not preaching the everlasting gospel. Are you understanding? If we are not lifting a suffering Messiah before the world, if we're just doing the math of the science of salvation, we have not fulfilled our duty to the world to present a suffering Messiah. Okay? And we're actually going to begin and end our three angels' messages with this topic because that's the point, guys. The whole point of the three angels' messages is to present before the world a suffering Messiah in all of his beauty and his power to overcome even the darkness of Babylon in this world. That's the point. So I want to walk into Jesus' story now with you today and just see different aspects of his sufferings. We're going to kind of go through one side of it in this presentation, and the faith of Jesus will go through Gethsemane and the cross. But I want to walk through this with you today because I think this is super, super important. Now, I would encourage you, um, I'm willing to give my slides to whoever it is that disperses things to people who have come to attend or just come see me after the fact, and I'll send you an email with the slides. Um, it's, I see sometimes people want to take a bunch of pictures or take a bunch of notes. I would encourage you to just sit back and enjoy the ride. I'll give you the notes. Okay, Just come talk to me. I'll give them to you. And feel free if you want to take some cursory notes, but I just want you to, to really allow yourself to experience what you're hearing today and to not be overly distracted. So whatever that looks like for you, do that. Okay? But I just think this is so, so important for us. Now, what I want to walk through are the sufferings of Jesus in ways that maybe you haven't heard before, and I hope and pray will find an even greater relevance in your life today, the Messiah, than he ever has. So I'll begin in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, and these, all these references are on the board. Jesus was conceived out of wedlock. Now, no sin was involved here, but imagine the shame that surrounds this narrative. It doesn't stop with him being born. This comes back in Jesus' face in the Gospel of John, and I always forget the chapter. It's somewhere between like 6 and 9. It's probably somewhere between 7 and 9, but he's having this polemic exercise with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They're trying to argue with him. Jesus is tactfully trying to win their souls and their hearts. But at one point, when they're talking about Abraham and who's a true son and how all these things work, the response to Jesus eventually is, well, we know who our father is. Now, why do they say this? It's because of the ambiguous father figure in Jesus' life of Joseph, because they know that Mary was pregnant before she came back to Joseph and before they got married. And so this, can, imagine, can you imagine the shame in a first century Jewish context of this hipster rabbi coming in and kind of shaking the nation with his teachings and his principles, and yet this guy has a seemingly shady background? Are you understanding? This is a heavy weight for them to bear. Imagine being married. She's doing nothing wrong. She's going to visit a family member. And when she comes back, she's pregnant. She's never known a man. And when she comes back to town and they see that she's pregnant, oh, the Holy Spirit, huh? What's his name? They're not going to believe her. This is a heavy burden that she has to bear and that Jesus bears and even flies in the face of his ministry later in life. This is a heavy thing, guys. 
I was conceived out of wedlock. Now, Jesus is not endorsing premarital relations or sin. That's not the point. But the shame that my parents went through in Southern Baptist circles in the 80s, when I was at the wedding, my mom looked like somebody smuggled a watermelon under her wedding dress. I was there. I don't remember much for obvious reasons. It's kind of in my own little bubble. But like this, this is the circumstance. There's a lot of shame that comes with that. And Jesus understands what that shame feels like. He's not endorsing sin. No sin was involved in his story. But the societal shame that can be felt in those circumstances, Jesus can relate to. Are you with me today? Jesus understands. How many people in this room are the children of a pastor or an elder or a teacher or a principal in the school? That your parents served an administrative role that was very difficult for you. Anybody in this room fall in that category? Not a soul. First time in years I've had this happen, but uh, it's okay. Anyway, someone out there I'm sure has had this experience. It's not easy for pastor's kids. It's not easy for people that their parents are teachers or administrators because they spend their lives living up to what everyone else expects them to be instead of just being who they are. And that's a burden, guys. It's a big burden. I've ministered to to well-known minister's children, and it's a hard battle for them. Because again, if I show up to church in the wrong clothes, dad's going to hear about it. People are going to judge my dad, and he's not spiritual. If I do something at school, people are going to judge mom because she's a teacher. And it's a heavy burden. But imagine being Jesus. You're the son of God. And if you stumble in word, thought, or deed at any stage in your experience... The entire plan of salvation is over. You will never see the Father again. And very likely, the whole universe itself is going to implode. You think Jesus knows anything about pastor's kid pressure? You better believe it, more than anybody. And he went through this so that you would know that someone understands when you're hurting and wrestling with this burden yourself. Amen? Amen. Jesus suffering for our sake. We're told in Isaiah chapter 52 that Jesus was beaten beyond the point of recognition. I'm not going to get into graphic detail this morning, but literally you cannot physically recognize who this man is when they're done with him. Now, why did he go through that? Because people like my mother have been beaten beyond the point of recognition. My mom was married once, had my half-brother Divorced, married again. I was at the wedding, as you heard before. Divorced again. And the third guy that she married, and I was about six, I got dropped off for a visitation. And my dad didn't drop me off. One of my grandparents dropped me off. And mom opens the door, and she's purple, she's blue, she's swollen. She's not the person I knew. She told me she fell down the stairs. But as a six-year-old kid, I knew better. Something's not right here. And I didn't feel safe. And for good reasons. The man maliciously and horribly beat her in multiple ways. And again, I won't go into details. Jesus went through this so that my mother could be comforted in ways that no one else can. Meeting someone else who's gone through domestic violence and that they got through it can be a blessing. But what if your own Savior and Messiah the ultimate comforter of humanity was acquainted with your experience and was willing to pour his life into you to help you through that dark chapter. You think that could do something for humanity today? Absolutely. And Jesus went through that just for her if she was the only one, but for many more because we know she's not the only one. In Isaiah chapter 53, 
We're told that Jesus, there's nothing about him that would draw us to him, right? Feeling that unattractiveness that society projects upon us, that not being enough. You don't make enough. You don't look good enough. You're not strong enough, right? You don't provide well enough. That weight that can be felt of not being enough. Jesus felt that societal pressure and those feelings of being overlooked and underappreciated. And he went through that just for you if you've gone through that experience and just for me. He was despised and rejected by men. You ever been rejected by people? You ever dealt with rejection? Oh, it's horrifying. It's terrible, right? It's a crippling experience. Jesus was acquainted with grief. You ever grieved? Ever had your heart broken? Jesus understands that. People hid their faces from him. You ever been in those circumstances where you're looking for someone and you're trying to make eye contact, you finally muster the guts to try to reach out to somebody and they just pretend like you don't exist? Yeah, Jesus understands that. He was despised and no one esteemed him and he was tempted to feel alone in his grief. You ever been there? No one understands you. No one's there for you. You're suffering alone and seemingly no one cares. Jesus understands that. He went through that just for you. Talking about the everlasting gospel and the suffering Messiah. He was overwhelmed with sorrow and grief. Not just this is hard and this is difficult. Like you finally get to the point and you're tapping out. You're tapping the mat and saying, no more. I can't do this anymore. I got nothing left to give. When is this going to end? You ever been there? Jesus has. And he did it again just for you and just for me. He felt stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You ever felt like every fiery dart from heaven's pointed in your direction? Yeah, Jesus understands what that feels like, too. Again, he, received, uh, he was wounded and chastised and received many stripes. Jesus endured a severe amount of physical violence. He did. As we'll cover in the faith of Jesus, that's not the thing that killed him. He was oppressed and abused, Isaiah continues. He was mistreated in prison and in court. He was mistreated, he was falsely imprisoned and brought to court and was just a sham of a trial. It was, a, it was just a total mess. The whole situation, falsely accused for things he never did. He died childless and he was found guilty for things that he never did. Okay? And this is a big one. Maybe you've been in trouble for something and no one would listen to you. Not just like your sister didn't take out the trash, but you got in trouble for it. I mean heavy stuff. Some of us have been nailed for things that we had nothing to do with, and no one would listen to us. And maybe we're still wrestling with that internally. Maybe we have feelings of bitterness and frustration and anger because no one is listening to me that that wasn't me. And you never got a fair deal out of this. Now, Jesus never wrestled with the bitterness, but he was certainly tempted to be bitter. Do you understand the difference? Temptation is not sin. He was tempted in all points as we are. And yet Jesus stands strong. Why? So that he can give you power to stand strong whenever you're being nailed to. Amen? And he died for things he was totally innocent of. It wasn't just like he got a slap on the wrist and just had something on his record. He dies for things that he never did. And he goes through this for you and for me. 
Then we get to Psalm 22 and David's recount of the sufferings of Christ that are kind of projected through his own personal story. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was tempted to believe that he was forsaken by God himself, guys. Jesus, who's been in eternal fellowship with God from eternity past, is tempted to believe that God himself has closed his eyes and closed his ears to the sufferings of his dear son. And do you know what feelings of betrayal can come into a human heart when you're left to suffer alone? Again, Jesus never sinned, but he certainly was tempted with these thoughts. He was tempted to believe that God wasn't hearing him or helping him. You ever felt that way? Whenever you're praying, nothing seems to happen. He remembered that other people received help when they prayed, but didn't feel that his own prayers were being heard or responded to. You ever been there? Some of us, hearing testimonies in a church service is crippling and excruciating. Why? Because every time I pray, I get cricket sounds. Every time I pray in agony and in sincerity, it's like my prayers hit the ceiling and laugh at me on their way back down. This is what many people are experiencing today in the church. We should probably talk about that and not ignore that. We should be a place where it's safe to people to express how they feel and to find healing in the Christian community. Amen? Instead of spiritually shaming them. That's not spiritual. Just pray. Right? Just get over it. No, this is difficult stuff. Jesus was tempted in the same way as these people. He was despised and ridiculed. People mocked him for being a child of God. You ever gone through this? Maybe you're going through a spiritual revival in your life right now, or maybe that's already happened and you you were converted later in life. Maybe you find yourself in a very tepid, avenous experience like everybody else around you, but that something sparked a revival in your experience and everybody's saying, oh man, so-and-so is getting all religious. They feel threatened by the fact that you're making improvements in your life. They don't understand it. You ever been mocked for being a child of God? I've seen it happen in our academies. Kids get fired up about Jesus and their friends say, it won't last. You ever been there? Jesus understands what it's like to be mocked for being a child of God. If you're the son of God, do something. He felt totally exhausted and empty. I got nothing left to give. The tank's empty, bro. You know, lay off. I can't do any more of this. Jesus understands that as if he had no strength left. Psalm chapter 22, he was stripped of his clothing and cried out to God for help. Now, the divine account does not tell us all of what Jesus endured, and I'm not going to put something there that isn't there. But what I can say is, in principle, Jesus went through something very similar to far too many people in this world today. Someone crossed a boundary and went too far. They were violated. They were hurt. And Jesus, in principle, was stripped of his clothing and cried out to God for help. Why? To let you know that he understands, that he's here. When no one was there for you in that vulnerable and awful moment, Jesus understands. He came to understand that God was listening and hadn't abandoned him, and eventually he was filled with praise, and that can be your story too. Amen? In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus, I'm not going to get political today, and I hope you're not going to get political. Far too many Adventists are drinking red Kool-Aid and blue Kool-Aid, and y'all need to get over that. Amen? Your solutions are not found from Fox News or MSNBC or CNN. They don't have your answers, beloved. Talk radio does not have your answers. Politicians do not have your answers. Only Jesus can bring solutions to this world's problems. Amen? 
It's important for us to see this. But in Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was a refugee and had to flee his homeland due to violence and political unrest. And why did he go through this? Because there are many people today who are going through the same circumstances, and he can comfort them because he knows what it's like. I love Jesus for this so much. Jesus understands. In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted to doubt his identity as God's child. You ever been there? Life comes at you hard, and you just wonder, does God even want me back? Would he really view me as his child? He was tempted to provide for his own needs instead of trusting God to provide for him. This is the wilderness temptation. Who hasn't been there, right? Jesus doesn't show up when you think he needs to, so you go make a visit to Hagar and take care of business for yourself. You ever been there? I'll go take care of this. God made a promise, and he's tearing and providing for that promise. So I'll take care of it, Jesus. Take the day off. I'll fulfill your promise for you because you're certainly not showing up when I need you. Jesus was tempted to meet his own needs in that moment. He was tempted to comfort himself with food when stressed. Watch out now. You ever stress eat? Jesus was tempted in the same way. The devil doesn't show up to him on day one of the fast when he feels strong and mighty. He shows up to him 40 days later when he's delirious and his entire body is longing for food. But Jesus overcame that temptation to give you power to overcome. Amen? Maybe not. I'll say amen to that. All right. He was tempted to prove his worth in pride. Tempted to prove his worth in pride. Do you ever have somebody get in your face and tell you what you aren't? If you're a man, do something. Fellas, you ever been on the basketball court and somebody presses your buttons or somewhere else? Someone gets in your face and tells you what you aren't. Jesus understands that temptation. But again, he stands his ground to give you and I strength and to let us know he understands what it's like to be tempted in that same fashion. He was tempted to physically harm himself. Right? Throw yourself down from the temple, Jesus. We still have big issues of this in even our own movement of attempted suicide, cutting, burning, right? other forms of self-harm. Jesus was tempted in the very same way to give you and I strength to overcome when we're tempted. He was tempted to give up his faith in God to receive everything this world has to offer. Who hasn't been there? Right? Just bow down and serve me and I'll give you whatever you want. Too many stories of people with gifts who started in church and are now selling their souls to the world and using their gifts because the prizes seemed a bit bigger in the here and now. Then in Matthew chapter 14, a close relative and friend of his was brutally murdered. Speaking of John the Baptist, you ever lost someone in an unjust fashion? Maybe a drunk driver or a reckless driver, medical malpractice, random act of violence, some other situation? Jesus understands what that's like. He gets it, guys. He understands. Mark chapter 3, his own family thought he was out of his mind. Maybe you understand what this is like. Your family just doesn't get you. I made radical decisions in my life when I became a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, even before I was an Adventist, that my family to this day still doesn't fully understand. I was homeless at one stage in my experience. We lost everything. A house was foreclosed. A car was repossessed. We're eating differently. Like it's, it, There's a heavy cross that we pick up when we leave the world. And when we do, there are going to be people who don't understand us, and even those who are closest to us. And it hurts, doesn't it? Because you want them to experience what you're experiencing. Yes, what I may deal with in my flesh is difficult right now, but what I'm finding on the inside is worth it. It's worth it. John chapter 7, his own brothers mocked him and didn't believe in him. 
Do you ever have a family member speak unbelief into your life? Their knives go way deeper, don't they? Our family have ways to hurt us that nobody else can. I was preaching at a school once, and I heard the story that the older sister of this young man graduates. It was a boarding school, kind of like this here. So the family doesn't live there. So they have a graduation party for the older sister in a staff home. And the mother stands up in front of everyone and points to the younger son at the older sister's graduation, a little gathering there at the house. And she points to the younger son and says, you will never experience what your sister just experienced. Can you imagine? His biological mother, you will never achieve what she has achieved. The staff were horrified that this happened in their home. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. This young man does go to that academy. How do you think he did when he got there? He didn't do very well. He also had a big struggle while he was there. You know what that was? Womanizing. I wonder why that was. Longing for the love and affection of a female. I wonder why he struggled with this. Maybe it's because his mother is a monster. And she tells him, you're still not going to graduate. You're not going to make it, kid. And she tells him that when your classmates graduate, you're going to sit in the front row and watch them graduate while you don't. This is a true story at an Adventist school. And the staff said, absolutely not. We are not going to let this person ruin this young man's life. And they labored for that kid and labored for him and labored for him and gave him chances and opportunities that most people wouldn't. And I'm so thankful for that because they may not be able to give him other things, but what they can give him is the satisfaction of knowing that he is loved, that he is accepted, and that whenever he puts his effort in, God will fight for him and see him through. And he probably shouldn't have made it, honestly. There are times he should have been let go, but they would not let her take this from him. I praise God for that school. They would not let her take that from him. And he graduated, amen? He graduated. His life is still difficult and still hard. But guys, our family have ways to hurt us that nobody else can. And Jesus understood that. His own brothers didn't believe in him. John chapter 7. Going to Matthew chapter 26, he wrestled with accepting the will of God for his life and with being willing to go through the suffering that it would cost him. You ever been there? Was it calling on your life? I went through this right when I was starting to give my life to Jesus. At the same time, my dreams were finally coming true, being a professional musician. And Jesus says, I need you to step out. And I thought, that is not fair. That is so not, you can't do that. This is the only thing in life that matters to me. You can't take this from me. I said, I'll be fully yours in three years, but just let me have this. And God in his mercy still worked in my life, even though I made the wrong choice. If I could go back, I wouldn't do what I did. But I did it because I didn't know any better. Many of us wrestle with this, with accepting the will of God and knowing that there's going to be suffering. I may have to lay down some dreams. I may have to lay down my plans. I may have to lay down the idols of the plan for my life I've already made. And I don't want to let go of. Jesus understands what it's like to wrestle with the will of God and to submit to it, even though it's going to lead to suffering. For some of us, it's not going to lead to suffering. It's going to lead to heights of bliss that you have never known. But you'll never know that if you don't say yes to him. 
He was betrayed by a close friend and was betrayed by a kiss. Hope no one in this room has gone through that, but it happens. Maybe you've been betrayed by a kiss because mom or dad had an affair or a close family member had an affair and ruined the family and ruined the whole circumstance. Jesus was betrayed by a kiss in principle to bring comfort and healing to those of us who've gone through the same. Matthew chapter 26, still, he's abandoned by his friends in his greatest time of need. You ever been in circumstances you're just sure that your friends will be there when stuff goes bad and then stuff does go bad and no one knows what to do? Jesus gets it. It's hard watching that because you don't know what to do in those moments, right? There's a miscarriage, a child dies, a divorce happens, and you, you just don't know what to do in these really, really painful, difficult circumstances. And so you just kind of go quiet. If I just don't say the wrong thing, maybe that's the best thing I can do right now. Well, the problem is this person's suffering alone, and there's no one there to help them. Are you understanding? The ministry of presence is a blessing. That's the one thing that Job's friends got right at the beginning. They just sat in the dust with him and cried. People need that today. Jesus needed that. We'll talk about that later this week. He doesn't get that from them. They're sleeping in his greatest time of need. One of his closest friends denied that he even knew him publicly in front of John the Apostle. He didn't receive a fair trial, and people lied to secure his conviction, and he was spat upon and abused by religious leaders. Maybe you can relate to this. Maybe a pastor didn't spit on you. Maybe he just preaches too loud, but that doesn't count. Uh, but maybe you've been in a situation where the, your, your reputation was ruined by the elders or politicians in the church, and you don't go to that church anymore. You've been hurt by religious leaders. Maybe you've been physically or sexually hurt by church leadership. Jesus was physically harmed by church leadership. His reputation was maligned. Why? To let you know that there's someone in this universe who understands and who's actually capable of doing something about it. That's why. You have a Savior who understands. In Matthew chapter 27, one of his closest friends commits suicide. You ever lose someone to suicide? I have. My cousin Josh was like 25, 26, 27. He's a young guy. Life hurt for Josh. Things weren't going right. The only thing he had going right for him at this stage in his life was a relationship. And she ends the relationship. And he goes to the bar where she's working or the restaurant where she's working and asks her to reconsider. She says no. And Josh goes out in the parking lot and takes his life. He's gone. Josh is gone. We can't have him back. Because life hurt. The cards that life dealt him were too much. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've lost someone who said, I can't do this anymore. Jesus understands that heartbreak. Jesus understands that pain. He went through this for you and for me our suffering Lord, our suffering Messiah. He was brutally beaten, tortured, stripped, and mocked by the equivalent of law enforcement and the military. Again, I'm not getting political today, but this does happen all around the world. People in power abuse their power, and Jesus went through this for you and for them when people overstep their bounds. 
He was tempted to numb his pain with wine. This is where every addiction comes in the equation. Every addiction that we have in our life is us seeking to numb pain and unresolved conflict on the inside. Maybe it's not wine for you. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's other substances, social media addiction, gaming, human sympathy. Maybe you get even more religious and just do an insane amount of outreach to feel good about yourself whenever really inside you feel like you're worth nothing. There are many things that religious people can run to that aren't even morally wrong, but they're still idols and they're still sedatives. Things that we're using, we're workaholics, many of us. Adventism, we really struggle with this. Work, 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 work. And we never found rest in Christ till the day that we die. And we wonder, was I ever good enough? Jesus, did I work hard enough? We spent our whole lives laboring for something that was already ours. Being tempted to numb our pain with whatever the circumstances may be. Jesus understands and Jesus refused that wine to give you and I strength to do the same by God's grace. In Matthew chapter 27, Jesus was stripped naked, exposed publicly, and shamed by those who should have been leading him for good. It's unfortunate, but there are many people, even in our movement, and young adults, I actually did a week of prayer to place, and like, the class president got kicked out for exchanging images with another student. This happens. And ladies, you need to know today that if a young man tells you and encourages you to do this, first of all, he doesn't deserve you. And second of all, if they say they will never show it to someone else, that is never true. It's never true, and it ruins people's lives. People don't get jobs because of stuff like this happens. Teachers have it happen, and students find out about it. It's it's not good. People commit suicide over this. Men have done it too. It's not just a one-sided issue, but the point is it's never worth it. And if you've been exposed and humiliated publicly, Jesus understands exactly what that's like was nailed naked to a cross at a major intersection in the community. And he went through this just for you guys. Just for you. He was tortured alive and he was tempted again to doubt his identity as the son of God. He felt forsaken of God and abandoned to suffer alone and totally unappreciated by those that he was giving his life for. You ever been there? Got parents in this room? You give and give and give and give and nothing's good enough for your kids. And some of you young adults, you're laboring. You're paying for your education yourself because family doesn't support you or can't support you. And then you're still being asked to give and do more. And you think, when is this going to end? Have you ever been in circumstances where you're giving your life for people and you are not appreciated? Jesus fully understands what that's like. And he went through this just for you to let you know when this gets the best of you and you got nothing left to give, you can bring that to me. I understand that. And you can come into the safety of my embrace and I will comfort you in ways that nobody else can. That's what we're offered in our suffering Messiah. Now, why did Jesus go through all this? We're told in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 11 that he shall see the travail or the labor of his soul and be satisfied. What? Think about being Jesus. When you look forward to what you're going to go through, it's hard. Are you with me? The cross was bad, let alone all this stuff that we've talked about this morning. And to look forward to that and say, oh yeah, I'm totally fine with paying that price. Sign me up. 
while Jesus is suffering, he's still satisfied. And as Jesus looks back upon what he did suffer, he's still satisfied. Why? Because by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. You're justified, he's satisfied. That's the everlasting gospel, beloved. We have a Savior who's acquainted with the grief of the entire world. He knows their story. He knows their pain. He not only has seen their tears, he too has cried, we're told. You think the world is longing for something like that today? You better believe it. Well, why aren't we telling the world that? At best, we tell people that Jesus died for them. Now, is that true, that Jesus died a literal, physical death? Is that true, yes or no? But is that the whole gospel story? You can answer, it's okay. No, it's not the whole gospel story. We have a suffering Messiah. Jesus came to suffer, to die, and to be resurrected, and to offer new life to his people. That's the big picture of the gospel. And he came to live a life like us, in flesh like ours, and to suffer, and to overcome, and to die, and be resurrected on our behalf. The world needs that message now more than ever. The height of suffering that people are going through. People are fed up. You see what's happening in Cuba right now? It's happening all around the world. People are fed up with being stepped on and oppressed. Well, who's going to tell the world to stand up to the wiles of Satan who's been stepping on them their whole life? And what's going to show them that the solution is found in Jesus but presenting a suffering Messiah before the world? And when this message is preached, it's going to be much easier for people to fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment has come. Are you understanding? Because there's a context for that. I'm not going to sacrifice and change my life for somebody I don't even know and probably doesn't even care about me. But if I know that they not only care about me and died on my behalf, but they went even a step further than that and went through the heartbreak and the betrayal and the loneliness and the abandonment that I go through on a day-to-day basis, they entered into that experience? Sign me up. If you think that highly of me, I'll do whatever you ask. Are you understanding? There's far more to the first angel's message than we've given credence to, and this is just the first part of it. But this is so important. Now, why else did Jesus go through this? Go to Hebrews chapter 2. This isn't in my slides. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And beginning of verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2 and beginning of verse 14 says this. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. And who's that? That's us. Therefore, in all things, Jesus had to be made like his brethren 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to make a covering for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who were tempted. Because Jesus went through everything that you've heard this morning, he now is given the right to comfort and aid you and I when we go through the same thing of betrayal, of heartbreak, of abuse, of loneliness, of abandonment, whatever it may be. Jesus has earned the right to comfort us because he's gone through the same thing. Amen? It's a beautiful gift to us. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Just a couple chapters later. Hebrews chapter 4, and it's beginning of verse 14. In the context of having a suffering Messiah, he says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now, why does he say that? Because he knows that when we get steamrolled by the things of life, when abuse happens, when betrayal happens, when other types of things come at us and come against us, it's really easy in our human flesh to let go of Jesus and move on with our lives. Because I thought that when I gave my life to Jesus, things would get easier. Now, did Jesus ever promise that, first of all? No, in John 16, he says, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Why? Because I've overcome the world. If Jesus has overcome the world, I assure you the fact that he's overcome whatever you're dealing with today. Yeah? And so, Paul knows the weakness. I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever you believe wrote it, the point is the author of Hebrews gives this implication that because we have a Savior who suffered like us, this is not the time to let go of your relationship with Jesus. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us in all our weaknesses, but was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. This is not the time to let go of Jesus. When you've been betrayed and abandoned, when people have gone too far, you can't let go of Jesus. He knows what that's like. He's the only person in the universe who can fully and truly comfort you. So what does he tell us in the revelation of the suffering Messiah? Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That's what we're told. So when you've been hurt, when you're grieving, that's not the time to let go of Jesus. That's the time to press into his presence. Come boldly to the throne of grace, that you may obtain mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. You think the world needs that today? Part of the first angel's message is to encourage the world to come boldly, guys. Come boldly. There's room. Now, close with the story on this. I was preaching at a camp meeting some years ago, and there was a young man there. And as I was preaching, um, well, the backstory is his parents, his dad and his stepmom, I think, but certainly his dad and his step and his brothers were receiving Bible studies from an Adventist guy. And uh, just an Adventist lay person, not a Bible worker, not a pastor. And they're giving Bible studies to his family. And as this happens, um, this young man has been in prison from the ages of like 14 to 17. Got caught up in the wrong crowd in a rough side of Knoxville and got himself in a lot of trouble. And ends up in prison from 14 to 17. Can you imagine? You should be making mud pies and building forts in the woods at 14 to 17. Learning how to drive. Studying math or something. He's in prison. And he's about to get out of prison. And his dad tells him, hey, we're going to these meetings. A neighbor invited us to these meetings. 
You want to come? Said, yeah, I'll come. His parents got divorced and thought, I'm going to go live with mom. That'll be fun. And he gets himself in a lot of trouble because mom's living the street life and it's not a good situation. So now he's thinking, no, I want to go live with dad. I want to get my life together. Things have to change. And so he goes to this camp meeting and the first night he's there is Friday night. I think it started on a Thursday, kind of like this situation here, like a floor. First full day is a Thursday. And he comes to the evening meeting, and the guy who's giving Bible studies to his dad comes and talks to me. He says, hey, this young man's coming, just got out of prison. I said, great, I'm glad he's coming. And the guy says, well, he's got like an ankle bracelet, GPS unit, that's basically he's being tracked. He's on parole. I said, I don't care. Come to the meeting. So he comes to the meeting, and we're having like a, there's like a campfire for the young adults. After the evening sermon is over from the evening speaker, then the young adults have this meeting kind of around the bonfire type thing, like a fire pit. So I'm preaching in a circle, which is kind of hard because you can't make eye contact with everybody. So you're like preaching, turning around, like talking to people. But as I'm preaching that evening meeting, of all things, what do you think I was sharing that night whenever Braxton shows up to that meeting? Got any guesses? What we covered today. How there's a suffering Messiah who knows your story. And that you can come boldly into his presence. And I made this appeal at the end of that sermon. I said, maybe you can't talk to your parents. I hope you can, but maybe you can't talk to your parents. You can come boldly to the presence of Jesus. Maybe you can't talk to your pastor. I hope you can. You can come to Jesus. Maybe you can't talk to your friends. I hope you have friends you can talk to. But if not, you can come boldly into Jesus' presence. And you can tell him everything. And he who comes unto me, I will no wise cast out, we're told. As I'm preaching that night, I can see in his eyes that God's speaking to him. When you do this for a living, you just know. And I knew that the Spirit of God was doing something for him, but I didn't know what. And as I close that sermon, there's a girl behind me that just starts ugly crying and wailing. She'd been sexually abused as a child and was living a lifestyle that she knew wasn't good, but she didn't know where else to turn to find love and acceptance. So she gave herself away to people. And she is weeping as she's heard this story of Jesus. And her friend next to her is weeping, trying to comfort her, but is also crying. The Spirit of God fell around that campfire that night. And I go back to the place I'm staying, and I come back the next day. We have Sabbath school, we have church, and we go on a hike. Braxton comes up to me after the, at, in the, at the beginning of the hike. He says, hey man, that message really spoke to me. I said, praise God. He says, I took you at your word, man. What do you mean? He says, I went back to my tent and I told Jesus everything. <laughs> everything that's been done to me, everything that I've done to other people, I told him everything. And he says, it felt so good. And for the first time in my life, I have peace. Amen. He's been in prison from the ages of 14 to 17. And the first time in his life, he has peace. Why? Because he encountered a suffering Messiah that understood his story. And that could handle his dirt and his stuff. Some of us are so ashamed of what we have done and what's been done to us that we haven't told a soul. You can tell Jesus. And he's not going to push you away. And he's willing to comfort you guys. You think the world needs to hear that message? Braxton needed to hear it. But here's the thing. When you encounter the gospel and all you've known is craziness, stability is scary. You don't know what to do with normal because all you've known is chaos. And in a brief moment of thoughtlessness, like 48 hours later, 
Braxton cuts the ankle bracelet off and runs. They find him. He went back into prison for years. But just think with me. Think, 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 think. Think with me. He's out of prison for like 72 hours, maybe 96. And in that short window of time, in the first 24 hours that he's out of prison, he encounters the everlasting gospel that changed his life. You think there's a God in heaven that cares about you and your story? You better believe it. There's a God in heaven that cares about Braxton and his story. Pray for him, would you? I pray for this kid daily. I want to see him in heaven. God wants to see him in heaven. And this is what should be driving us as mission-minded Seventh-day Adventist Christians to preach the everlasting gospel to the world, having the boldness and confidence that this message is exactly what this world needs to hear. It's exactly what will bring healing and freedom to these people and that we can give them the call to come boldly because he's not going to cast them out. Are you with me? The everlasting gospel will lead people to fear God and give glory to Him and to live a life that would honor Him in the midst of the judgment. How many people in this room are recognizing that living for Jesus is a good decision after hearing something like this? How many are more willing to put more on the table if Jesus put all that on the table to live for us? Maybe that's why the everlasting gospel comes first. And then the call to fear God and give glory to Him comes second. God's smarter than you are. (laughs) He's smarter than our foibled attempts at preaching the three angels' messages. He understands what's going to shake the world and get their attention is a suffering Messiah. And from there, they will respond. And after they respond, they're going to be willing to worship Him as He says to worship Him. Are you with me? The gospel's at the beginning of the three angels' messages. The gospel's in the middle of the three angels' messages. The gospel's at the end of the three angels' messages. And if we are not preaching that, we are not preaching the three angels' messages. And maybe, just maybe, that's why we're still here. God in heaven, thank you. Do you have the solution? Do you have the divine remedy? And maybe we have forgotten. Maybe we've been caught up in beasts and distractions. But Lord, I pray today that the suffering Messiah has garnered our attention. And I pray that you would guide us in how to best take what we have learned and how to share it with the world. This is a message that is easily shareable. We don't have to use avenous jargon or lingo or whip out time prophecy charts. Not that those are are not helpful. They are. But the point is, what grabs the world's attention to begin with is what we've heard. And Lord, has grabbed our attention. So I pray that you would speak to us just now, that you would give us courage to share this message with boldness to the world around us, to those in our sphere of influence. And, oh, Jesus, we pray that you would come soon. Lord, make us ready. May your bride be ready by preaching this beautiful message to the world and responding to this message with a holy and solemn, full consecration. Cover our sins with the blood of Jesus Fill us with your Holy Spirit, and God, forgive us for not understanding the powerful message that's been lost in plain sight. And I pray that it would take the world by storm, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.